Hello and welcome to another episode of Something Rotten. It's the main event, Blake. We are finally playing The Last of Us Part 2, Part 1, because this is a game divided into four segments for this podcast. My God, Jacob. Here's the thing. Here's, here's my question. Okay. We are a podcast that I think has been lucky and that, you know, we're both very left-leaning, very outspoken in our views and criticisms of video games. And we have, for the most part, had very normal reactions and criticisms to previous seasons. But we're stepping uh-huh. onto the hornet's nest with this one. Look, I've, I'm just hoping the hornets are going to be chill and cool. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm As the one who monitors our email very closely and our uh, Spotify comments, it's going to be a rough one. But luckily, we're here with the best guest of all time. Some would say the last of us expert. That's right. Joining us from Kotaku, from Normandy FM show, uh, Kenneth Shepard is on Something Rotten. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Ken, how much of the last 10 years of your wonderful career has been dedicated to being the best voice on The Last of Us? Uh... I, I thought I had an answer to that, to that uh, question until the, the second half of the sentence, and now I'm like, am I that person? Am I? I don't know. Um, I mean, you're one of them, for sure. I read all your Last of Us pieces. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say. Um, uh, I mean, as far as, like, how much my career has been dedicated to The Last of Us, um, I mean, you know, in terms of, like, an actual, like, number, I can't really, like, put that, but in terms of, like, series, I would say that my work is largely synonymous with. I think Last of Us is definitely up there. Sure. And uh, Pokemon. Yeah, okay. Pokemon and Mass Effect, Persona, you know, everyone's got their pillars, and I think The Last of Us is definitely one of mine. Um, uh, as, as far as, like, what that actually looks like, I kind of started writing about games around the time that I played the first Last of Us. I was like, oh, this is gonna, this is very formative for me. I'm gonna switch my entire career around. Um, and then when I actually, like, got into the space, I wasn't writing a whole lot about it, because, like, you know, the game had already come and gone by that point. But then when Part 2 came out, um, wrote about it a lot at Fanbyte, um... Wrote about the TV show a whole lot at Kotaku my early, my early first few months there. Um, did a whole t- 16 episode retrospective over at Normandy FM about both games. So I've kind of just been inundated with it for the past three to four years at this point. You still like it, despite all that time? Uh, I, I like the games. I don't think I like anything that surrounds it. I don't think I like being around people <laughs> sure. and talking about it. So like this is, this is a privilege for y'all. <laughs> I, I have like come out of my shell to come talk about The Last of Us with people again. Now, what are your thoughts on some of the central creators and acting talent? You know, <laughs> I, I think they should just shut the fuck up. I think you can let Listen, your work... the man in the arena. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is it is, it is kind of a, a testament to the the cultural cachet of this series that, like, there have been two games and a TV show... And that has been enough content for sure. you to essentially write about yeah. for, like, ten oh, years. Sure, sure. You know, I know you've been doing other stuff in the meantime, but, like, there are plenty of series that have right. had more than two games that you would struggle to, like, find new things to for talk sure. about for that whole time. Um, well, luckily, we brought you on a, an episode of this show with very little to talk mm-hmm, about. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first, like, six hours of this game, not that much happens. There's really not that much to go into in the development history. Just, like, a smooth, mm-hmm. normal uh, video game. Yep. Very chill vibes. It's gonna be a nice one. 
a 45 minute pod i can edit while i sleep <laughs> surely won't run long on this um we write this in the uh in the episode descriptions but for people who are playing along perhaps for the first time which would be a, a wild thing to do yeah. um we are playing up until uh essentially the flashback after uh ellie finds the theater like so we're, that's that is our first 25 percent of this game which i think is it's like a little more than 25 percent through but like this is a long ass game um and so we'll be talking about you know i think our thoughts on the game overall but like specifics will be on that section jacob to get it out of the way i, I fucking love this game fuck with it it's playing it now i'm still fucking with it uh-huh i am a little unclear and we know ken loves it I'm a little unclear uh, on your thoughts about this game because a couple weeks ago, I thought you really liked this game, but recent comments have cast a shadow of doubt over that. So I'm curious, one, how your thoughts on it when you first come, came to it, and I remember us talking about it quite a bit, and also yeah. it's been like revisiting it over the last week. Um, yeah, I mean, so I I played it when it came out. It was almost, it was almost uh, grudgingly, and I don't say that, in regards to the game itself, but I experienced the same thing with God of War 2018, where I thought, okay, I'll play this eventually, and the reviews started coming out, and it was just that, like, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, and I was like, god damn it. Like, as someone who talks about video games professionally, I guess this is just one of those, like, you don't have a choice, you gotta play it right when it came out. And I do think, you know, I it was almost impossible for me to think about the game absent the the cultural context that it came out in yeah. and i don't like i really want to avoid talking too much about like people were saying this uh on this podcast because i think that's kind of an impossible thing to define and not that interesting to listen to but um you know the the big articles about crunch specifically were like really hard to avoid um nor should you have been trying to avoid them. Like, I think it's important to read about that sort of thing. Um, you know, I I have feelings about kind of the AAA machine in general, and in some ways this felt uh, synonymous with it. And so playing that, I playing it, I had that in mind. And there was just, uh, there was just a lot of negativity. And so I was coming in with like a lot of skepticism about the game sure. like as a project even even absent from its like story just like the game as a as a piece of uh merchandise made for people to buy um i i did like the game i mean i my experience when it first came out was just like man i really don't know what to think about this at all um which was a cool thing to feel and i have kind of been wrestling with it without replaying it for a long time and so now replaying it somewhat removed from the you know it's like i i'm still thinking about the game's production but somewhat removed i i think i am able to appreciate uh what it's doing more and i mean of this first six hours like i am i can't wait to start playing it again after we record this podcast is basically what what I'll say, you know, like I, I've been talking for a long time. I, I'm excited to see where I land at the end of this game because like generally it's not the first six hours that I was like unsure how to feel about when I first played it. You know, I think this is pretty, pretty damn solid. Um, and it's just like the shape of the story as a whole. So that's, 
that's me. It's interesting hearing you talk about it because I can I uh, pretty sure I remember it would have been the same for you. I played it before release. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And you know I wasn't completely decoupled from the conversation around it because the Crunch mm-hmm. articles had long since come out, and I was you know pretty fatigued by just Last of Us conversations at that point over the last seven six to seven years um definitely fatigued by now over a decade after that first game but um sony this is like uh, you know there's plenty to criticize sony with their the their rollout for press on their first party games is actually like pretty pretty great in the industry and i feel like we had this game two to three weeks before yeah. release i think i think i was a little later because i was on like second wave but this right. is getting in the weeds point being I was a freelancer at the time too, so like I was in yeah, my. Yeah, where sl- were you playing this for? I was playing it for Unwinnable, actually. Oh, um, so shouts out to my contact at Sony, who was like, "It's hard for freelancers to get Sony copies, mm. and it's really hard for indie outlets to get them." But Andrew Kelly at Sony hooked me up. It was like, "Yo, <laughs> here you go, have this." So shouts out to Andrew. He rules. Um, anyway, I was a freelancer, and other than the kid, no one I knew was playing it, and I was not like at an outlet. So I played it basically like siloed off from the world Mm. and was able to experience it and have my thoughts on it and i mean i was a mark for it for sure like uh it was before i played part one and kind of soured on the first game so i you know i was just all these beats but before you played the re-release right 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 the re-release and kind of soured on a little bit of that but like all the emotional beats like fucking nailed me and it's yeah. interesting going back to it you know i i'm in general not a person who re-watches a lot of things or rereads books or plays games many times because like the emotional moments rarely land the second time for me and i will say that is happening here in a lot of cases where those emotional moments just are not having that big of an impact i feel like i'm having more of a subjective uh experience if that makes sense um wait more, uh, maybe subjective? more subjective more subjective more objective more a more objective experience there we go um of it this time around but it's still like <laughs> and without the narrative beats landing i'm a little more annoyed by uh to use a, a tim rogers term the prestige tours of this game where you walk slowly and they talk at you for a long time and i'm just like come on let me get to the fucking point that said I am playing it and finding myself kind of respecting the audaciousness of a lot of this game as a AAA product. I think the opening of this game is like, I don't want to say antagonistic, but it's like obviously what players I, did not expect. I would say it's antagonistic. I think. Okay, sure. I In think Last of Us Part 2 is like one of the most like player antagonistic games of like its scale. Um, sure. Like in terms of like sure. a AAA okay. game. And I think like that's, that's something I don't really like having to always add that caveat, like, when I talk about The Last of Us Part Two, like, when it does this thing that I think is great for a AAA game, because I, I feel like that's, like, yeah. demeaning towards, like, AAA games, which I don't mean to be, but I think there's, like, a lot of interesting things about the way that... that and, and, and I know we said that we don't really want to, like, linger too long on, like, what how the game is talked about, but I think, like, a lot of The Last of Us Part Two, what makes it fascinating to me is that the way that it's talked about, I think, speaks to a level of boldness within yeah. what we expect AAA games. And, you know, that I think that says more about the industry more than it does, like, part two but the thing that was interesting to me to hear y'all talk about kind of like leading into it was like what i found more and, and again this was also com- me coming from a person that was playing the game before like before you before everyone else played it before like a lot of those conversation points started coming up is that like the thing that was most in my mind when i before i started playing it was not necessarily discourse more than it was the way that naughty dog themselves talked about it i think like there's a there's a lot about this game that i think in a vacuum is like a really fascinating 
you know, video game story, you know, and like how those things are melted together. I think in a vacuum without having to take into account all the other conversations that happen around it, I think it's actually a really fascinating look at like a very player antagonistic design and narrative that is making players wrestle with a sort of friction that a lot of other AAA games don't. What I was more worried about when I was going in was that like Naughty Dog had spent a lot of time talking about this game in ways that I ultimately felt were like very reductive, being like, oh, this is a game about hate, uh, is a game that is all about, um, you know, how violence is bad and the player should feel bad for doing it. Um, and ultimately, like, all those conversations just felt like very annoying on their own, but then when you get into the actual very real story that the game is telling, and all of those marketing beats became very suspect to me, um, because it was like, oh, you guys deliberately obfuscated the realities of what this game is about and what is what's actually happening and so the thing that has been frustrating to me as like a, as a longtime writer and fan of the last of us is that like i feel like naughty dog's marketing of part two has done more damage to the way that we talk about the series than probably anything the games themselves do um which I, to be clear i think the games like deserve like a lot of criticism as far as you know various you know, things that people talk about but i, I think like we're still unraveling from the discussion points that, like, Neil Druckmann said in an interview, um, that the game itself doesn't really seem that interested in talking about, but, like, this was the way that you framed it to millions of people before you were ready to talk about what the game is actually about. And, you know, like, the second the golf club comes out and you realize what's happening, like, oh, everything was a lie. Now, Um, I don't fully disagree that the game is about hate and violence being bad, but to your point, I don't think it's solely about that. It's certainly not. And I think it's, it's also, like... And we can't probably can't say much more beyond this point, but I do think this game is like kind of tackling who earns revenge, which I think is an interesting idea. And Ken, mm. to your point, or like I know you've written about this, I also think it's a game about love because that hate literally cannot exist without like mm-hmm. the story being centered around the love of these two characters. And uh, I just I I think it's I think it's a really good point. I've been I've been reading a lot of what. Naughty Dog, and specifically when Neil Druckmann was talking about uh, before should never this game that. came out, never which is that. a real like, oh my god, <laughs> shut the fuck up, <laughs> like don't, don't, and we will, we will talk about some of the stuff that he said uh, later on. But it is, I do think it's kind of a a weird function of the Sony AAA mm-hmm. apparatus specifically, where their marketing seems so invested in telling you how you are going to feel right. about a game as much as what the game is. You know, it's like. I feel like the funniest example that is it's easy to make fun of because it is so ridiculous but there's that that trailer for Death Stranding where the whole world is like flooded and it's going backwards and then you see that it all came from like a single man's tear when he was playing uh, Death Stranding like have you seen like unlocked in memory I completely fucking forgot about that shit (laughs) which is I mean like that game is so funny the marketing can do whatever it wants I don't care as a quick aside the Death Stranding marketing was crazy because that is a game i really love and it's not a game i even thought i was going to play until the reviews came out and everyone had to be like all right guys this is what this game is actually about which is Mm -hmm. interesting to think about the way the reviews rolled out for the last of us part two and what Mm -hmm. they were not allowed to say about the game um yeah but just the you know the idea in that trailer of like this is a game where you're gonna cry Mm -hmm. more than like this is a game that is doing whatever and i think a lot of the last of us 2 was like you won't believe how prestige this game is. It is going to tell stories cinematically in a way you've never seen, which I I agree. It's like the framing is just so frustrating that getting to a point in your brain, 
one more thing pre-release. Did any of you get hit with the leak stuff? Nope. Because that was a huge story. So I I, I managed to get away. Like I didn't I didn't see any actual leaks. I did see a fake one that was in the back of my mind the entire time I played the game, and then it turned out to not be true. And I was like, oh great. Well, that was brain space wasted on something what that wasn't was, even real. What was the fake thing you saw? Uh, the Ellie would die. Uh, I saw um, a, a related thing is when I first played Bioshock Infinite, I ran into a fake spoiler where I was Googling very early in the game, like, hey, where's the key to this chest? And I just found someone saying, oh, it's right after Booker kills Elizabeth. And I was like, ah! Mm. And then, like, the whole rest of the time I was playing it, which does not happen in the game, um, I did not seek anything out, really tried to avoid it. Just before starting playing the game, I was streaming something else, or I was watching a stream or something, and I just saw someone in the chat, and their name in the chat was Joel Dies by Golf Club. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and it kind of took me a minute to be like, what? What is their name? Oh, no! Mm. And then, you know, but fortunately, you get that out of the way pretty early, and then I didn't know what happened for the rest of the right. game. Yeah, no, no leaks hit me that moment came at my freaking face like a golf club i'll tell you what okay blake talk about the first six hours well they're not fun well li- no i mean mechanically they are fun after the first hour they're not happy <laughs> and i forgot mm. about that part of the last of us so we're not gonna go too much into the last of us part one but basically it ends with ellie the idea of ellie is she will be the cure for humanity and joel robs her of that autonomy and in the story of the game dooms the world to just be forever afflicted by this disease. Um, this game picks up several years later. They're living in Jackson, Wyoming with, uh, in this, uh, community that Joel's brother, Tommy has made with his wife, Maria. They have electricity. They have, uh, delis bars. Uh, it's, it's a little town. It rules. I don't know why it's like a old West town. I'm really like not entirely sure why it's not just like kind of normal ish. I guess I've never been to Jackson, Wyoming. Well, Maybe that's what it looks like. I feel I feel like that is to answer that question is to kind of get into some of the implicit politics of the game, but we can sure. we can do that okay. later. Okay, that's worth talking about then because I was confused walking around the town square, being like, "Why the fuck are all the buildings from 1730?" Anyway, um, so we we start the game with we open with Joel admitting what he had done to his brother Tommy. There's a really good back and forth between Joel and Tommy here, where Tommy just like is literally speechless, like he does not offer a monologue or comfort. It's just like a good delivery of a mm. character being like, "The fuck do I even say to you?" Yeah, I mean, and even just the fact that you start playing as Joel, yeah, mm-hmm. I feel like is an interesting thing. To, it's like the one time in the game. So the opening sections in Jackson are really centered around the rift between joel and ellie we see joel is trying to reach out he's you know trying to joke with ellie he gets her a guitar as a gift that he's going to teach her how to play but it is very clear there is a tension between these two and the you know it's never overtly stated at least at this moment in the game but it's clear ellie has never believed what joel told her which is that you know she was not actually needed to find a cure there were other immune people from the cordyceps uh disease blah 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 Ellie clearly doesn't believe it. And so this is what I had kind of forgot about in this opening is, you know, like if the first game really made you love the connection between Joel and Ellie, I'd forgot that the opening of this game, the death of Joel aside, was basically like, 
you never get a happy moment between them mm. in this extended opening. It is always tense. It is always awkward. It is always robbing the player of what they want, which is just as like have Joel and Ellie having a fucking good time again. You late, you get that later in the game, and it's mm. it's great. It's there's a really good scene we'll talk about later in the episode. But I had forgot the six first six hours of this game are just fucking awkward, <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's it's wild. It's truly wild. We're interrupting this broadcast to let you know that something rotten is dead we're doing what starting immediately something rotten is done finished gone bon voy freaking oz jacob this podcast is now a leo vader fan cast every week we're covering all the latest hottest and juiciest news about the minneapolis movie maker and if you've seen him you best believe there's plenty of hot news to talk about we're like as much as i love him we're not going to do that uh, but if you like Leo so much, have you considered signing up to Nebula? To what now? Nebula. Nebula is this wonderful streaming service run by creators with exclusive videos, podcasts, shows, the whole nine yards. I'm on there. Leo Vader is on there. Blake, you're on there. Is that what these checks are from? My God. Okay, here's the deal. When you sign up to Nebula using our code, nebula.tv slash something rotten, you get immediate access to early and ad-free episodes of this show and exclusive bonus podcasts featuring guests such as Noah Caldwell-Gervais, Gareth Damian Martin, and Chris Bratt. You also get access to Nebula's entire catalog of creators and content, and your money goes directly towards us making this show better. Do you think Leo feels about me the way I feel about him? I think a better question is, does Leo know you exist? I've literally pooped in his bathroom. I would sure hope so. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great point of just being like, oh, come on, let's get back to, you know, how it was back then, which is also like clearly how Joel feels. feels. Yeah. You know, like he wants to be like, let's vibe. Let's let's be like we were in, you know, fall before I got stabbed, you know, through the chest. And like judging by the reaction to a lot of players, what they wanted and expected from this, which I think makes this right. intro Absolutely. also wilder to just be like, no, sorry. Remember, Joel did kind of a bad thing. Right. Anyway, Ken, what were you going to say? Yeah, I. it was fascinating to me at the time because I, I think like when it came to talking about like what is a sequel to The Last of Us, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people view the ending of that first game as this very pristine, crystallized thing that should be like kept on the shelf and like looked upon as this like m- narrative moment in games where I think what I needed... You know, as a person who kind of felt that way, what I needed to kind of, like, justify this game's existence was to have it be clear that it was going to put its fingerprints all over that. It was going to acknowledge, like, yes, that was, like, this very important moment, but it also was not above us dissecting and leaning into further. Because, like, from the outset, like, they aren't simply just forgetting about that and moving on to a new story. It was, like, so foundational to the story that would be The Last of Us Part Two that, like, that was when it felt like it kind of earned... It's existence, I guess, for lack of a better term. Like, it felt like, oh, like, we are not simply just making another Last of Us game because the first game did us, did some really fucking good numbers for us. Yeah. But no, like, we are very specifically expanding upon the story that it, that it was before. Because I think there's some, like, and this is something that, like, I, I just find a general frustration with, with most media is that when people are like, oh, if a world is large, there must be more stories to tell in it. And it's like, I, I frankly don't think The Last of Us as a, as a setting is that interesting. I think it's like broadly, I mean, you know, the, the science is cool. The science behind it is cool. But, like, broadly, it is zombie fiction. And I think, like, the core of why that first game was impactful was Joel and Ellie. It was, like, the nature of their relationship. And so for part two to come out, like, immediately swinging in terms of being, like, we are going to expand upon this relationship in a way that feel makes it continue to feel very central, even if it is going to expand to 
a larger cast and it's going to expand it like all these new relationships and dynamics that all kind of circles back to this one thing that was foundational in the first game yeah and if we're talking about that expanded cast good moment as any to bring up the best last of us character Wait. of all time <laughs> no not yet um I, look we'll get to her i want to talk about that first scene with with joel and ellie more just to, to ask y'all a question or to to work through uh some stuff joel comes in with the guitar he plays ellie a little song uh if i by ever were pearl to, jam yeah by pearl jam if i ever were to Future lose days. you um how do y'all like that moment? I, I think I liked it the first time around. The second time, I was way more interested in everything before and after that moment than actually sure. sitting there and be like, oh, Troy Baker has a clause in his fucking contract that says he has to sing and play the guitar. Here we fucking go. Well, so on that note, Joel's not that good of a singer. And I like that. I like that it feels very like... That's fair. Yeah. It's fun. Like there. very dorky dad that like, you know, tries to teach his kid how to play guitar plays a song that she's never fucking heard like she has no context for um and it's not like i mean i mean like sure he hits most most of his notes like joel's not like that's not troy baker putting on his troy baker singing voice that is this man singing down like an octave lower than i can even fucking hit um singing some dorky like one of the i mean i, I don't love pearl jam but they got better songs than that um oh, sure, 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 sure. my my they main... got better love songs than that <laughs> um my issue with it is an issue that kind of extends to some of the other, like, quote-unquote, nice moments in this game, which is, like, it, it's too, it's too much for me. And I kind of have, this might be a problem with me and, like, people singing in general, but, like, the lyrics to that song are so unbelievably on the nose that mm -hmm. I almost can't even take it you know just just the fact that like joel's like hey here's a guitar i'm gonna teach you how to play it and then just sings the song where the lyrics are if i ever were to lose you i'd surely lose myself it's like it's like you couldn't have picked anything else that's not just like here's so, exactly what's going on in my brain i also i that honestly though it just feels very in character for joel you think that man's got an ounce of subtlety in his in his body i don't think so I, th I think like I think he like reads like the literal words that are from is like oh yeah you know this is this yeah, but it's like yeah so it's like now that he opened up to Ellie he can't pull it back in mm -hmm. <laughs> He's just... I also want to point out I'm sorry to be cinema sense uh, this game stays impressively committed to the idea that it's uh, apocalypse happened happened in September 2013 and this song didn't come out till October 2013. <laughs> So they have actually acknowledged this in that there, there are two ways that they acknowledge this. One's in the universe, one's out. One, they debuted that song at a concert long before. Oh, oh so Joel, Joel was there. happened to be there. No, okay. so, well, I, Austin, whether he was Texas. there or whatever, like, or like saw it on YouTube, whatever. Two, the apocalypse happened like two weeks before that album came out. So those the albums would have 100% been printed. They would have 100% been in stores. And, like, there's even a record store that you go to in Seattle that has the posters for it. Like, it was about to be on it sale. Does, that's oh, right, that's yes. so funny. Yeah. Airtight, you know. Uh, Druckman got me again. <laughs> Damn, Damn it. it. <laughs> okay, talk about, talk about your favorite character, Blake. Dina. Are we allowed to say this on the podcast, Jacob? The best NJG of all time. <laughs> It's you know she is uh she's she, her her body capture uh is an Italian woman not a Jewish woman but we've mutually assured that like we can all play each other um she's and, an honorary she's an honorary Jewish woman yeah and and she is she's acted by one it's just like that weird 
you know thing where they're the face yeah. capture is different than the the like body and motion capture mm-hmm. um no she's she's great i mean uh she's yeah love love dina uh love how she talks about judaism um yeah dina she's the best dina is ellie's love interest in this and left behind you know ellie came out as gay or the character how do you i guess ellie didn't she you go she, i'm trying to say it we was revealed that she is yeah gay. yeah <laughs> there we go um and Dina in this is by she is the ex of their mutual friend. Um, oh God, what's his name? Jesse. Jesse. Jess, n- Jesse. Is that it? Yes. Um, okay, so they had just split up like a few weeks before, and then Ellie and Dina had shared a drunken kiss, which riled up a bigot within the town, which caused further strife with Joel. And Ellie, as Joel uh, tried to, I guess, uh, stomp the man with a brick, as Joel is wont to do. <laughs> Joel <laughs> tried to Allyship. break his neck. But on top of actually maybe in in place of the fatherly love between Joel and Ellie, we actually get this romantic love arc mm. in the beginning of this game between Dina and Ellie that I think it's like it's really good. There's a lot of really good moments with them when they go um when they go patrolling around Jackson because um, you know, they have like crews of people that patrol around the town to watch out for stragglers or infected, things like this. And there's some really good moments between them. I also think as Ellie Granted, Dina is kind of cast at the side at some point in this game, and she doesn't join you out on your adventures because of narrative reasons. But I think for a lot of the beginning of this game, is you're kind of like wrestling with how dour this is going to be and how just like mean and nasty a lot of this game is. Having Dina as that like comic backup helps a lot, even if mm. it is uh, to summon the, this word straight from 2013, a little ludonarrative dissonance at times to just have Dina like cracking up in the background after I've like just like and Dina just being like, oh, something's wrong with our our horse. He's a little horse. <laughs> yeah. After I've just popped someone's jugular vein out of their <laughs> neck, Dina's like, here's a quip. But um, she's great. I have I written her. down weed is this game's giraffes, <laughs> um, which. <laughs> i i think and it's like it's a weird thing because the giraffes happen at the very end of the last of us and them stumbling into uh unexpected like weed growers den happens at the very beginning but like even though there are other moments in this game that kind of go for the same level of delight as the giraffes did nothing in this game makes me happier and is like more unexpected than them being in this kind of scary cabin trying to figure out like what's happening you're like oh god you're gonna find a dead guy and instead you just find a grow room full of like you know 40 weed plants mm-hmm. and then they like get high i, I it's Bro. it's one of my favorite scenes in the mm-hmm. game they're not in a scary cabin they're in a library you love the library it's scary <laughs> are you scared when you go to the raleigh library well i durham go to the durham library, library Blake. I, um, okay fucking i got it <laughs> i think the the early moments where i was like oh this game does have good writing even on first playing is when ellie opens the door and it's jesse and she has that very awkward conversation with him where i mean it's like he's he's fine and ellie is extremely awkward um and Mm -hmm. then the them having the conversation in the in the weed den which also features you know it's like the the tech shit we do have to talk about it's like characters like interact with each other physically you know in this case romantically but in all sorts of ways throughout the game like so convincing that you forget that video games are bad at it you know, like watching <laughs> watching them like kind of cuddle and like kiss each other and whatever, 
I was just like, yeah, this is this is a scene between characters, and totally forgot that like no other kiss in a video game looks good. You know that that right. like it is really really astonishing that they have this level of just like casual intimacy with each other, and it does not read as awkward because of like the limits of the game's physics mm -hmm. system. Can yeah. you got any thoughts on Dina? Um, I am when when I first played it, and what what I think is broadly like m with my feeling throughout this first section of the game as far as their relationship was i was just like happy to see that ellie's queerness was like very upfront in this game because i think there's like a, there's like a very valid criticism to be had about the first game where a lot of that was sequestered into dlc um and and, and the her love interest dies so it's like yeah. you don't have to deal with it right and so i was just happy to see it explored so upfront uh in the beginning and you know in ways that were made clear that Ellie had, like, found some level of, like, she was no longer just having to relate to the adults in the room. Like, she has people that are, like, her contemporaries within this community and has her own drama, her own bullshit to deal with that is not always about life and death. And, um, by extension, like, I think it's, it's one of, like, the smaller things I think to, like, kind of hyperfixate on. I liked how it ended up playing into the world building of Jackson as a place as this sort of, um... <sighs> kind of like an American small town in terms of how... I, something that's fascinating to me about The Last of Us because it feels like very intentional in how they write a lot of culture... Like, in terms of how they write about culture in this in this world, is that, like, because of the, the apocalypse, like, everything's kind of, like, boiled down to, like, the lowest common denominator of, like, how people... Like, how culture permeates through places like Jackson. And so, like, when you get into the stuff, like, where, you know, there's this bigot named Seth that is, like, has this very small-minded worldview, and you realize that, like, parts of that have survived the apocalypse but like as we'll find out later in in seattle like ellie and dina don't know what a pride flag is and there's like all these like interesting things about the way that last of us kind of talks about how what like how does culture survive the apocalypse and like what how is that just as much a casualty of you know of a pandemic as people are um and i just i think like have it like as a person that's like lived in a small town for the majority of his life um a lot of those things that Ellie goes through just felt very true to life for me. And, um, you know, for, for a, a lot of the issues that people have with, like, other characters that y'all will talk about in another episode, um, The Last of Us feels pretty precise in the way that it writes about those things, um, in ways that feel, like, very intentional and, like, felt like they have... At least as far as, I'm, as far as I feel, I feel like there's a level of care and forethought into how the things are implemented into the world that The Last of Us is. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it makes Dina and Ellie's relationship feel kind of special in the midst of all the other shit that is kind of, uh, people coming together by happenstance and by necessity yeah. more than anything else. One of the things that I really like is they, um, uh, they have a conversation just kind of incidentally about, like, one of Ellie's exes who was, like, mm -hmm. uh, the tattoo artist who, like, did the tattoo on her arm. And just the fact that, like, it, you know, it was like Ellie existed between the last mm. of us one and two and she had like romantic relations and she was just like a person I, you know i think it's really it's really nice that they don't do a thing with dina of like oh my gosh this is ellie's first like adult mm. relationship and she doesn't right. know you know whatever um yeah i think the 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 jackson thing is interesting and the kind of like like casual homophobia that is clearly still there is like mm. an, an an interesting part of it because like it does it does feel very 
real and you have you have this moment where ellie's kind of like hey fuck that guy and his not his wife just someone else in the town is like can you just can you just be chill about it like can can right, you kind Maria, of Maria? oh yeah yeah right yeah. Where, where she's kind of like can you forgive him because things will just go a lot smoother if you do right. keep the which peace. It, uh you know which is like maria is kind of a um a, 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 like one of the more uh logical rational characters mm. throughout the game but also you can see she's kind of just being a like look man just don't don't fuck shit up even though this guy is being a bigot to you you know like things are right. gonna be more smooth which is uh if you were in a small town and queer or whatever yep something that you certainly uh will have experienced it does as as we will talk about uh in the future it is weird that like homophobia exists in this world but no uh you know no questions of race whatsoever racism has kind of been wiped off of the face of the planet with the uh with the plague um and the other thing here's here's something to talk about with jackson so there is I think one of the one of the saddest scenes in the game is you go into Joel's empty house and you uh like the kind of game objective there is you find a revolver in his room uh but also it is just that kind of naughty dog thing where they give you a chance to like look around someone's mm-hmm. house and and like oh what kind of pictures did he have he had he had a wood carving station you can go and like smell one of his jackets which is just like heartbreaking um but also my thought in that scene is why the fuck did Joel live in this house? Like a single man in like an enormous suburban, it, it, it's like, it's like a 2,500 square foot house. And it is this weird thing about Jackson where it's like, it's kind of like they're all just living in the suburbs. Like, even though it is mm. a commune, this weird idea of like, everyone has their private property and it's like giant houses that were left behind i just find like very strange and it is it's sad to think about joel like being in there alone essentially but also it's like it's kind of one of the things where i don't know if the game is critiquing it or just kind of reproducing it thoughtlessly of just like what a weird commune to live in of like everyone in this town just has their big old white suburban house except ellie who lives in a garage that's right also really quick to just uh correct something i said earlier i looked up jackson wyoming and that's just what it looks like (laughs) i know it looks like a town from the (laughs) 1730s surrounded by suburbs that's it (laughs) like that's the whole thing all right so joel dies should we talk about that okay uh let's talk about abby beforehand (laughs) because that's another it's like you know the game for most of the first half of this game, you're just Ellie. But the game does, in the very first couple hours, like, get you used to switching pretty rapidly between characters. And it is weird to be thrown into Abby's character when you don't know even what her name is, let alone, mm-hmm. like, who those people are or, like, where they are or what they're doing. It's cool, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's really strong to just be like, hey here's nine people fucking get over it you gotta play as one for a while and shit's gonna go so south for her that there's gonna be little exposition to even explain who this is i think it's like a really strong character moment for that game despite the lack of character Mm -hmm. i I think it just 
it kind of goes into like what I was talking about earlier. I feel like the game is very player antagonistic because like I think you know when you introduce a new character for somebody to play as, especially like when you're in the middle of playing as a character that's established that you have presumably some attachment to, and like you just kind of throw them in with no context to this other character who plays slightly differently. Like she does not have the same loadout as Ellie. She doesn't have the same strength as Ellie. Like she you know she fights for the fist where Ellie has a switchblade and. You know, just, like, from a loadout perspective, like, you were constantly being forced into this other thing that is completely different than what you've already learned to expect, and with no context, and all the, all the sort of, um, and it's one of the things where, like, the, the very, we talked about before, like, the kind of, like, natural way that Last of Us characters kind of talk to each other does not always open itself, like, it, again, like, feels very intentional, like, it does not open itself up to the same exposition that other games might, because, like, you've got Abby and Owen here just talking about, like, their relationship and all of this stuff, like, sure, like, that is expository, but, like, it, it clearly does not feel player-facing in the way that a lot of video game dialogue can be. And then it's like, oh, we have to hit on all these points and say it in a way that sounds very unnatural and weird. Um, but the, the context is so lacking that, like, you don't, all, you don't immediately realize what you're doing and you are playing as this character who is barreling towards this other character you do also presumably have some attachment to. And it feels like... And this is what I think is kind of... Well, I guess we'll talk about this more like, as we get into the specifics of what's happening. But there's, like... It feels like the extrapolation of the last section of Last of Us Part 1 where you play as Joel and then everything goes down at the fire the Fireflies uh base and this sort of disconnected it intentionally sows between you and the character you're playing as and kind of just makes you live with it. And you know, you can have your scruples about it, you can feel however you feel about it at the end, but like ultimately like to progress forward you have to inhabit you have to inhabit this role as kind of like stage acting like you are a person that is inhabiting something and acting it out to its logical conclusion. Yeah, I think um and one of the things, I mean, boy, this is a theme for this game, but it's like they don't they don't immediately give you a lot to hold on to with Abby. You know, it's right. not it's not like it starts and she's like immediately quippy or, uh, you know, kind of like gives you it's like it feels weird to be playing her, not just because you don't know who she is, but also it's like just after leaving the Ellie and Dina section where they're, like, so personable and, like, oh, my God, can't wait to spend more time with Dina. Like, Abby just isn't... She's not, like, giving Naughty Dog. You know, she's not... Right. She she doesn't go, like, no, 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 no when she, when she slides towards a ledge or whatever. And it's just kind of, like, it feels very alien being placed in her shoes because it's just, like, she's not, she's not, like, fun. You know, like even mm. even even when we know that Ellie is like sad or disturbed or whatever, Ellie is kind of like cool because we know who she is and she has a switchblade and whatever. And it just feels feels different to be there. Um, and then she runs into Joel and Tommy, which I think on second playthrough is one of the most rewarding parts of the game, because like just to know what's happening in her head mm. when you didn't originally to just see it right. like she's having all these discussions and they're like, how are we going to find them? And she just fucking runs into them. There is a wonderfully animated moment. The second Joel says his name to Abby, mm -hmm. where you just see like her eyes become the size of saucers, which yeah. like, you know, a game 10 years ago, you probably couldn't add that like level of just like right. facial animation. But Abby's face is like, Abby's face tells a million stories in this moment, especially on a second playthrough when you realize who, she, when you know who she is. Like, it's a crazy fucking section right here. So I'm playing the whole game um, next to uh, another E name. We've got Ellie, Abby, and now uh, my partner, Annie, uh, who I watch the TV show with. And... E name? Yeah, oh, like e, e Ellie, yeah, <laughs> I Abby. See, I see, I um, see. 
anyway, Andy hasn't has hasn't played Last of Us two. Doesn't know what happens. First experience with the Last of Us was from the TV show. I don't know if it's just because she was watching, but these opening hours, I just had like truly the most dread. Like playing, like starting the game was so hard, just because I was like. I know what's coming up and I don't want to see it, but also like she's going to experience this truly awful moment of Joel's death for the first time. And like, I, you know, just vicariously, I don't want to like have her experience such an unpleasant Mm -hmm. moment. What is Annie's like, she watched the show. Does she like the story? Like, was she into Joel? She, she was interested. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) she had the most normal reaction that you possibly could to this. And I was like, man, you are not like people on the internet where (laughs) she watched the show. She liked it. I think was, um, had, had some issues with the show in similar ways to what I did, but at the end, so Joel gets killed and she says, Oh no, I'm so sad. I can't believe Joel died. Although he did do a lot of bad things. Mm. Like that was literally (laughs) her quote. And I was like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to. So Abby, we don't know why yet. But Abby, when Joel and Tommy go back to the, um, I guess, the mansion that her and her crew are staying at to, you know, get out of this big blizzard and also just the hundreds of infected that are now running everywhere. There's a really great chase scene with Abby in here. All the chases in this game are generally really good, by the way. Um, There's one later in the section not as good we can talk about. But anyway, uh, we don't know why, but Abby kills Joel and... This scene, obviously, was burned in my memory. To talk about the first time I played it, I had no clue this was coming. The game was not spoiled Mm. for me. And it was one of the rare moments in media that got me to audibly, like, gasp when, like, the shotgun blast hits his leg. Mm. I remember sitting in my room at the time being like, (laughs) like, just like... I was going to say, Blake, I think that is the most rotten moment of this scene. It is not, not that he gets killed with a golf club, but that shotgun to the leg is so fucking brutal. So so I want to talk about this, right? We've talked on this show about the um, lack of ceremony around some characters' deaths and the way we like that. Like, uh, we talked about in No Country for Old Men, the main character's killed off screen. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a good Spring Breakers death. James James Franco's character, like, just drops it in one scene is never talked about again, which, you know, history has proved that was good. And for the best, we should all do that. Uh, I, they don't... Now, all that said, <laughs> Joel's death is brutal in a way that, like, on second playthrough, I was surprised by that they went that hard on torturing him. And I could not understand if that's just because in the world of The Last of Us, everyone has to die brutal deaths. We'll talk about plenty more brutal deaths. Or this is the game saying Joel deserves this level of torture. Or I just was a little surprised on this playthrough thinking about, like, this is the choice for the mm. game's main character is to kill the fucking shit out of him in a way few games ever would their protagonist. I am I'm of a few minds of it because I do think, and th- this gets into like a sort of a larger conversation that y'all can get into in a later episode. Is that, like I feel like The Last of Us Part Two feels like both literally and just in, like the way that it kind of portrays things. I feel like it is a constant. It, it the game's constantly in conversation with the perception the world has about who Joel Miller is. Um, which I think is, like, interesting to, like, think about and replay after 
watching the show where I feel like that show tried to do a lot more to humanize might be like the easiest, laziest word to use in terms of like trying to make you understand like why somebody might be sympathetic to Joel on a level that is not just simply like I played with him. Um, because I think like The Last of Us Part Two, because of the structure of its narrative, I think it spends a lot of time making you sit with the effect that one person can have on two different people. Um, like one person can view this person one way, another person can view them in a very different way. And I think the brutality of Joel's death is like kind of like the last word for one character to kind of say, like to speak into sure. the world, like their perception of this character, where another character has to spend the entirety of the game reckoning with like their conflicting, ultimately more positive feelings towards that person. Um, so like, I think having Joel's death be as violent and, you know, just, you know, like as it is, like, I think that, that is just like speaking to the character that did it more than it does any singular vision of who Joel is because I think the game has like two very conflicting visions of him and I think that's like the the nature of it is to sit with like you know for a, a person that you know ostensibly ruined the entire world's chances of ever coming back from this pandemic but also this person that is like loving enough of his daughter figure to take her to a fucking museum to go see all this nerdy shit that she likes like I think the game is constantly like sitting with how different two people's views of one person can be and I think that's just an extension of that well it it also asks like decoupled from all the good we've seen joel do what kind of death does he deserve for all the bad he has done and you could probably make a fair case that abby wasn't cruel enough based on what joel did to the fictions playing it you know but it is like in terms of it's a raw moment like it's it's brutal as a person who ultimately like really loves the character of joel miller for all his complexities it's i mean i think the game the game is obsessed with and i will we'll talk about this more um what like what does deserving death even mean you know i think is is something that you have to tangle with with this game because it's like me as a person probably will not come as a surprise to people who are familiar with my work uh am against the the concept of the death penalty Mm -hmm. Not just as an aspect of the American justice system, but like, I do not think that people should die for crimes. You know, like, I don't I don't think that is like a punishment Mm -hmm. that we should deal out. Uh, There are people in the world who I wish were dead. You know, like Mm -hmm. that is that is this thing. And 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 Ellie in this game is obsessed with this idea of, as she says, justice, which is killing the people who killed Joel. And and I think the game is really asking you, and I mean, even Dina asks Ellie this several times, like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, what, it just, like, you killing them after they killed someone you love, like, that's it, That that's the equation equals justice, and, like, when you find someone dead who was involved in Joel's killing, and Ellie didn't get to kill them, she is very disappointed because she didn't get to kill them. And it's like, so you killing them is justice, but someone else killing them is not? Like, what is, you know, what does that mean? And I do, unfortunately, I do think we should talk about one of the things that inspired this game now, because it is Mm. very bound up in, uh, in Joel's death, and I think both the depiction of it and where it's gone, which is, Neil Druckmann has said, in multiple interviews that uh he a a the kernel of the story uh idea for this game or whatever 
uh, came from a video that he saw of, uh, in the year 2000, there is something that was referred to as the uh, Ramallah lynching, which is, uh, to, to say this as succinctly as possible, um, uh, two uh, Israeli soldiers um, accidentally drove into Palestine, were detained at a Palestinian uh, police station. This is all on the West Bank, uh, and a, a passing a passing group of people uh, broke into the police station and horribly killed uh, those two IDF soldiers. Uh, there's video of this. It includes, sorry, like um, their heads being bashed in, which is, you know, if you think about The Last of Us too, you can see the connection. Um, the necessary context for this is... Uh, the passing crowd was a funeral march for a 17-year-old that the IDF had killed because in the past two weeks, the IDF had killed 100 Palestinians, including 20 minors. Uh, as, you know, and that is in the long, long history of the IDF killing way, way, way more Palestinians than Palestinians ever kill Israelis. Um, so, you know, and Druckmann sees this as a child, uh, says that, he uh, felt incredible anger. He wished that he could, quote, push a button and kill all the Palestinians. And then later says that he felt, uh, you know, immense guilt and disgust at himself for feeling that way. And then he decided to kind of make a game about that. There is so much to talk about with that that I it's kind of going to follow us through this whole series. Um but I do think it, just in the context of Joel's killing, like, for this to essentially work on the player the way that it worked on Druckmann, like, you have to feel so mad that you would do anything to get back at these people, and clearly the route to that is extreme violence, and, like, that is... That is how Ellie feels at the end of it. And so, like, I I do kind of don't think that it would have worked for the goal of this game if it was not as, like, agonizing as it is. Sure. is you know? I Oh, boy. Uh, any of you have thoughts on yeah, um, uh, that? I, I feel dirty saying this as a press member. Neil Druckmann needs a better PR handler to stop him from talking. It's unbelievable, like, yeah, man. Jesus I mean, Christ. like in general, I wish game developers did not have PR handlers so they could talk. This dude actually needs a team of them to be like, Neil, just just say he needs a muzzle. Just say, hey, my game is coming out in August. I hope everyone enjoys it. Because good lord, you dolt. It's one of those things where, like, I feel, and again, this comes back to what I was saying earlier. It's just like the way that, and not not to say like any sort of creation should ever be like completely divorced of how it's talked about by its um by its creators by you know the hundreds of thousands of people that are trying to like put this out in the world and market it to millions of people to be to be bought in the PlayStation 4. Um it's like it's this constant struggle like as a as a Last of Us fan who thinks that the games actually like have a lot of interesting things to say about, you know, all the various things this this game has to like always have the people that are talking about it talk about it in these ways that are just like you leave no room for interpretation like good faith interpretation of like how you're presenting these ideas because like you know, divorce of everything that the Druckmann says, like, I, I view The Last of Us Part Two as a game that is about, like, you know, it's about grief and ultimately leading to forgiveness after, like, a series of 
not necessarily forgiveness of the person that has done the thing wrong, but like forgiveness, forgiveness of the person that has put you through some. Again, y'all get to y'all get to all that later. But like in a vacuum, like the Last of Us Part Two, I feel like has a lot of like really kind of like powerful meditations on those things about like how you know our own agency is taken away from us and a lot of things, and like how it takes us time to reach that like level of peace on our own without everyone in the world telling us that this is what we have to do. And all those things are fascinating to me. But then you got Neil Druckmann who comes in and like just like frames it in like this horrific sense that like it's not it's not like a one to one comparison of the story that you've written, but it is still the context and like the framing that you're giving people to consume this thing with. And it's just like, how do you not realize that that's going that is going to tinge the way that everyone talks about this moving forward? Not that it has really, I think, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it matters to them that much because like it has not stopped The Last of Us from being this very like huge prestige moment that wins all these awards yeah and it's like in general the people who don't like this game they don't not like it because of its like implicit israeli politics you know it's like that's not what subreddits were created for sure but you know it's just like i i I think the last of us part two and i I think i even said this to blake um once on like i get the game before podcast was it like i feel like the marketing campaign of the last of us part two was like this moment in my head where like the gears started turning and, and like i became so much more jaded towards video game marketing campaigns than I've ever had just because like you've got these people that are like talking about this game in one one and like in one pillar of things like you've got them who are deliberately obfuscating the reality of this game is so everything they say have come suspect but then like when you get into the inner workings of like the framings that they had as they were making this like it suddenly becomes much more vile than I think even the game itself is necessarily positive because it's very much in the specifics of the relationship that it is written rather than bringing in, you know, this very fraught, you know, political framing that Druckmann talks about in his marketing that, like, is this thing that I don't think that the game is ever really going right. to recover from, just because, like, you got one person in a group of hundreds that have made this game that has painted this certain image of the conflict that it's trying to illustrate that I just don't think it can ever really erase anymore. Which I don't think it should, to be clear. I, I think, like, whatever it has to say in a vacuum... Sudden, like now has this other cloud hanging over it that it just can't separate from. For a game that I think is very interested in love and relationships, as much as it is interested in like vengeance and hate, like those stories are fine to tell, but the way it was talked about pre-release and Druckmann's comics comments paint it with a layer of insidiousness, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes it harder to sometimes want to meet the game on its terms when in the back of your head, like you're thinking about these things Druckmann said about what influenced him. It's hard to like want to open your heart to the idea of these two characters, like having happy or loving moments because it's created from such a place of Mm -hmm. venom, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I do think, I do think even without, even if he had not done those interviews, it wouldn't be impossible to find these things in the game you know it's like the game doesn't exist totally you know it's like we've got we'll talk about pieces that are like written that are using in-game sources to talk about it but i (laughs) yeah it is it is just like it is so so visceral an image that he paints of it that it is then kind of impossible to think about anything else uh in, in in a way that i uh find very uh very frustrating and and man look as a also just as a jew and a jew who loves so much of the like jewish stuff in this Mm. uh 
one of my least favorite parts of being a Jew is uh, feeling connected to Israel in some way. And so it is just like, God damn it, you're doing this mm. to me again. Like, I can't. <laughs> I can't just think about how it's nice that that Dina uh, loves the synagogue, you know? Yeah. Uh, really quick for listeners who maybe aren't super familiar, there's a really good piece on Vice by Emanuel Mayberg um, called The Not-So-Hidden Israeli Politics, The Last of Us Part Two, that I really recommend. Yeah, we and we'll, we'll continue talking about that piece. One thing that I think is really interesting that he says that I, I think you can actually talk about um, without engaging in that whole political conversation is uh, early on he writes the last of us part two takes place in a more stabilized post-apocalypse decades after societal collapse where individuals and communities choose to hurt each other as opposed to taking heinous actions out of desperation which i do think is like a really interesting way of framing the divide between the last of us one and two and kind yeah. of where that like love hate thing comes in because like even though joel's uh, version of love I think is extremely fucked up you know it's like in the first one he is doing much of what he does out of love and like you know because it is like if I don't do this we won't survive and in this it's like they could they could easily survive you know it's like Joel is dead that's sad but like they're not doing this because they think it represents a danger to their community you know, it is like they are making a choice to go and kill people. And in many ways, the WLF are doing the same thing. And it is mm. this like, I think it's what makes this game so much more cynical than the first one is the first one is kind of just that question of like, how far would you go for love in a, in a world that's dangerous? And in this one, it's like, even even if we have community, we're going to like seek out violence, which is just such a nice. depressing theme kind of on track with some of the themes of killer seven right even if we have world peace there will still be terrorism <laughs> like they're kind of similar ideas in some ways yeah but it's like killer seven never actually had world peace you know it's like jackson's a <laughs> well, chill place yeah i guess so yeah, yeah. so yeah, i think kind of i am i'm of a whole mind for that because I, I do think that yes obviously like that is the nature of what abby and ellie both have done is they they sought out this violence in one way or another but i also think like that you know, if that in, if that in and of itself is cynical, then yes, I, I guess you, the game is cynical. I also think the game is broadly, one way or another, by the end, has done a lot to kind of illustrate that like this this cycle of violence there existing is not necessarily this universal constant, and there is regardless of whatever compulsion you might feel, there are people that don't like that are are willing to condemn what you're doing, that are willing to speak out against it. Um, you know, Lev is, a, is an example that y'all will get to eventually. Um, in the in the sort of like the final section of the game, Dina becomes that voice for Ellie, and it becomes less about like you know this is like the inevitable sort of end game of everything that everyone experiences in this world. And I think it, it just becomes a, a thing of like people have to be willing to come to terms with that themselves, and then like make the de active decision to move away from it. Um, because like, even as far as like, even as far as what we're talking about today, like the um in that early segment, you know you get the sense that everyone is like you know came with Abby you know, somewhat on board with what they thought they were doing, but then when it got to the level that Abby wanted to do, like, everyone was, like, not about this. Like, you know, Owen's very much like, you've had enough. Like, we need to get out of here and this right now. Um, and as y'all will get to later, like, you know, that has, creates a rift between Abby and Mel, where Mel was like, okay, I kind of signed on for this at one point, and then it became something very different. So I think, like, at the outset, like, when you kind of, like, when the game is simply framed as like, okay, 
Ren Shore in Seattle for Ellie. I think, like, yes, that is, a, you know, the sort of cynical viewpoint that it kind of puts forward. But I think by the end, it does, in in my in my opinion, like, it com- comes across much more like these characters were not at peace. And now that they are, now that they are, they can find something new in this world. And that does not have to be, like, the thing that everyone inevitably ends up doing in this world. Um, because I do think, like, you know, having something like Jackson is sort of a hopeful expression within a post-apocalyptic world that, like, yes, like, everything can go to shit, but, like, communities can be found again. Um, and that, you know, it just takes, like, you know, one person willing to put a board onto a nail to make a house. And, um, yeah. So, like, that was my long-winded way of saying, like, I, I do think the game, like, ultimately is hopeful, and I do think it is kind of putting forth that, like, this does not have to be the way that things are. I think I think that's a great point, and it also, it, it, it makes at least Allie, Allie, Ellie, um, a almost a much more tragic character because it's like her she has received like joel's fucked up version of love and has kind of Mm -hmm. incorporated it into her worldview which is you know and it's like we see uh the the flashback uh section where they go to the museum is wonderful as we've talked about many times and it's like showing that like joel is capable of being you know a normal father figure Mm -hmm. who does nice things but it's like so much of joel's expression of love in the first game is through violence you know like that is kind of how he builds it and and even though ellie is is so like disappointed and mad at him for the decision that he took from her at the end of the game i do think that this game is illustrating that it's like she she learned like what love was from that like really twisted version of it that he was demonstrating which is just so sad and you see other Mm. characters who did not learn it in the same way being like why are you doing this right and and ellie is almost unable to articulate it because i think it's just it's just like part of her brain chemistry after everything that she went through with joel and that's something that like i i have a lot i mean over the years like i've kind of collected various things that are said about the game that kind of like get under my skin and one of them is like the sort of notion that like ellie should stop when I feel she should stop, because I feel like that's something that's often, like, put on the last section of this game, where, like, you know, all this stuff has happened. Why is Ellie not simply satisfied? Why is she not content with the life that she has? And I think there's, like, something, especially with that character, like, where every, like, tragic moment of her life is in agency being taken away from her, whether it was Riley, whether it was the Firefly base, whether it was Joel's death, whether it was being forced to leave Seattle by getting her ass whooped. Like, Ellie's autonomy is, like, so paramount to, like, what she doesn't have in this world, and that, like, I like when you get to like the sort of metatextual ideas that Last of Part Two is ostensibly putting forward, where like Druckmann's like, "Oh, you should feel bad for doing violence. Don't you feel bad?" Like this very finger waggy version of the story. Like, and then but then you're also ha- having this character that is constantly the one that is actually in the driver's seat, and this one that's like, "No, I still need to do this because I have still compul- I still feel this compulsion in all these other ways." Who, to me, like that is more important than how I like than my scruples. It, to me, it is more important that Ellie sees things to her natural conclusion and is able to make a decision on her own, which is kind of, like, you know, incongruous with what we've been led to believe video games should be, right? Like, we've always been told that, like, you know, okay, you're the hero of the story, you're the one that's in control, and I think sort of, like, attaching our moral compass onto a character who has, like, lived through a very specific world and has a specific worldview and lived experience, um, that's just always been, like, one of the things that I've always had trouble with in terms of conversations around this game, um, 
and which I think is, again comes back to I, I feel like Naughty Dog has talked about it in a way that didn't actually feel like it worked with the format of game they put out. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the moral compass thing is good because it's like, hey, you can disagree with her. Like, I think this game expects you to disagree mm-hmm. with the characters very early, but yeah, then saying like, so the story should be the thing that I would have done is it's just like hey, that's not how stories work. <laughs> hey guys, yeah, we've all gone around the horn here, said a lot of really smart things. Mind if I dumb it up real quick? Dumb it up, Go like. For it. Uh, while Joel's being tortured, he says the hardest line of all time, and I just want to make sure we acknowledge it. He looks Abby dead in the eyes and says, uh, go ahead and say whatever speech you've been practicing and get this over with, which is a oh, wild man. thing to say it's, seconds it's really before good. you're killed. Like, that's so good. You know what? For all his faults, he, Druckmann's an all right writer occasionally. He's got some bangers <laughs> in that head of his, and that line is so fucking sick. And they, he looks up with, oh, it's so, so good. So good. Um, but then he's dead, and you know what can you do? We all got to move on in life. And Ellie is like, well, gotta wash my hands of this. Live and mm-hmm. let go. Yeah, so it's, uh, yep, Ellie, Ellie is chilling. <laughs> right and, and then she decides to take a vacation to Seattle, totally uh, disconnected. You know, the story really. It really kind of, it doesn't, it does slow down. You know, it's not that mm-hmm. you stop getting information and you are, like, learning about the world in every minute of this. But, like, of the six hours that we played, the first three hours are a, a mile a minute, you know? And mm-hmm. then the second half is this kind of much more measured going around. It does the same kind of interesting Naughty Dog thing as they did in Uncharted 4 where they were like, here's one big open world mm-hmm. section in a way that the game isn't going to do for the rest of the time, you know, right. but like it is this really interesting experience to get into the the Seattle QZ and like you just got a big open field basically with a bunch of buildings and you just get to walk around and do stuff. I finally mm. found the music store this time. I, I had not seen it before. Oh, you, you didn't do it. Scene. You got yeah, your you take find... on me. Yeah, I hate that song. And I didn't like it here, <laughs> but it was like, I did finally find it. And I was like, oh, it looks nice. I just do not fuck with that song. I think this section's cool. On a second replay, it's kind of frustrating. Be like, God, I got to go all the way fucking across this field. I yeah. just want to go to bed. But it's a cool moment. I don't think The Last of Us needs this. And I feel like the yeah. developers felt that way, too, because it's never repeated to that scale again. Where right. in Uncharted 4, there was, like, two or three of them. Yeah, and they did it again in Lost Legacy as well. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, like, I, every time they've done, like, a pseudo-open-world moment, it's always felt like an experiment more than it has felt like, oh, this is, like, a pillar of the design that we really wanted to get. And, like, I, I'm i not, like, super hopeful that they will kind of go back. Because, like, I mean, broadly, like, this game's, one of the game's biggest issues is pacing and is, is, is length. Um, because, like, when I think of, like, the actual, like, plot beats, I'm like, I don't really know what could have been cut to make this short, but then I think, of, like, oh, right, there's an entire open-world section that was, like, twice as long as it probably needed to be. Um, and I think if you're, like, leaning harder into that in a, whatever their next game is, I'm just like, oh, come on, y'all. Like, you you did one thing really good for, like, several years. I don't think that we need you to, like, create on the scale, especially considering, like, the, you know, like, again, like, all the reports about, like, the, the state of labor over there and... You know, when you have this game that is of the scale and when you operate on, like, a detailed level the studio tends to operate on, it's like, what if you didn't do that? What if you scaled back? What if you did something that was both going to probably be easier on all your developers and also easier on me seven years from now whenever you actually release it? And I won't have to invest several hours of my life trying to get from one side of the map to the other. They are are interesting on a mechanical level because I almost feel like—and I think—if I can—I think the— 
the section that happens shortly after the giant open field moment, which is when you're just going through like a big series of like apartment buildings and complexes. And it's like, it's much bigger than you think it is going to be. Like it's actually pretty non-linear, even though it looks kind of just like a Naughty Dog like street that you walk down. It's like, there's tons of stuff. I feel like it's almost like they are attempting for a level of realism where they're just like, hey, this environment would be this big. Right. You know, not everywhere they go is going to have like a bunch of chairs piled up in front of every door. But then as a gamer, I am like, I can't miss a single pill or, mm -hmm. you know, part or like, what if there's like a training journal in there that I don't find? And so it's like, I almost feel like I would have a better time with them if I was more able to be like, okay, I looked for around for a little while and now I'm going to go. But instead, just in like gamer min max brain, I'm like, I got to look in every corner. I got to make sure I'm not missing anything. I don't have many bullets. I need to find another bullet. And, and then it's like, I am ruining the pacing for myself almost. Something I think worth bringing up here is how good the combat in this game is because we're, we're hitting the load of it. And, um, the last of us one had fine combat, I guess. The Last of Us 2 is, like, genuinely one of the more fun games, I think, that's come out. Well, okay. It's, that maybe I mean, it's, like, underrated it's, it's in its combat. Yeah, it's absurdly fun in a surprising way and very dynamic. And the other mm -hmm. game was, like, dynamic, too, but it was dynamic in the sense that you could kind of run away and get back yep. to cover and go back into stealth. And this game, it's not an immersive sim, but it is very... Every combat scenario is, like play your own way, right. find ways to bend this combat arena around your finger. It's, you know, when the tides change mm -hmm. against you, how are you going to react to it? Like, and I think, you know, obviously there's combat earlier in the game, but it's very tutorialized and kind of small. But once you start getting here and definitely in the later sections, we're going to play where they like got very ambitious with the scale mm -hmm. of combat arenas. It's, it's so good. Do you feel that way about, uh, all of it? Or I guess what I'll say is, um, I um I was shocked at how long you go in this opening section before you fight other people. You know, that you're just fighting mm. infected for, like, so, so long. And the infected combat, I think, is fine. You know, it's, like, it's high sure, stress. I... It's high tension. But I do think it's, like, when we are talking, when I'm talking about how good the combat in this game is, I'm largely talking about, like, fighting other humans that's mm. a really good distinction and yes i mainly mean fighting other humans and the occasional moments where humans and infected are combined mm. um fighting humans which comes after this major first major open section you do go to like a kind of a smaller open section where they start introducing more humans um that's where i think it is really good uh helped in large part by the prone mechanic in this game that they did not mm. put in last of us part one and it fucking needed it, it is like we've we've talked before about how like i think i I think I mentioned, I would always kind of fantasize about, like, what if there was a game where you killed, like, a normal number of people, you know, where it had combat, but you were fighting, like, two people in a level or whatever, and this is, like, not quite that, but it is about the closest that any mm. game has ever got to being, like, just that it's, like, you don't feel like, oh, two, well, they're just throwing two guys at me, this is easy, it's, like, I am fighting two other human beings you know and i i don't think it's not just that they yell each other's name 
and uh and like die horribly it's just kind of like the way they're animated walking around mm. the environment and kind of like their just their behavior patterns feel so legitimate like you really don't see much jank in their behavior and it makes you realize how many games when you're fighting enemy opponents they just behave so absurdly that you immediately like stop thinking of them as people there's just something so good about the loop of like going into arena seeing someone's there going prone in long grass or hiding taking a moment to set up some traps and be like all right i have this clockwork machine that is going to go off without a hitch first trap goes off obviously everyone's on high alert inevitably someone's walked behind you and seen you forcing you to start running in a way that like i'm sure if you were not playing it would look ridiculous but in the moment feels very realistic as how you would approach it. it's like i'm gonna run you know as someone might corner you so you throw a bottle at them and hit them or slash them with your knife but there's another dude to your right so you have to quickly turn then and like waste your two bullets you have on him and like at every moment you are having to like make these micro decisions that create the sum of the larger part of the combat scenario and you could never play that section the same way twice you know like any in uncharted engagement just to use like the most natural comparison is going to play out the same way you're going to go to one of three different cover areas and you're going to like shoot ducks in a row and i never i feel like i could play a combat arena in this 10 times and all 10 times it would feel different and something like it would go right in 10 different ways and it would go disastrously wrong in 10 different ways. And the fact that it repeats that throughout almost every combat scenario, at least in these sections that we played is like genuinely impressive. And I think mm. worth like commending. And I wish it was like something more prevalent in other third person. Absolutely. Shooters. I think something that has always stuck out to me. And I think like to speak to your, to your example of like every sort of encounter feeling very different. I think something that the game does is actually very impressive is I think the way that it makes Ellie and Abby's play styles drastically different, even though ostensibly like you're working with the same mechanics. Like Abby's very much like heavy artillery, um, where Ellie's just like kind of ramshackle stealth driven sort of build. Um, that has always been fascinating to me because like it, it's another example of like, I think where that perspective shift is like so paramount, not to just like, the narrative, but it's also like, how you're approaching the situation because like abby can handle things that ellie is not equipped to handle um which makes like you know the shift cannot can sometimes feel like a buff or a sort of like a, a hindrance at a certain point because like you get so used to being able to handle things one way and having the uh the tools at hand to approach things in a way that maybe like for ellie like i've gotten through so many of those first few encounters in seattle without like an, a bulletin going off um or abby just by nature of the stuff you're given she's not able to necessarily pull things off in the same way and i think that's just like a testament to the dynamic and just like just like the, the way that it feels like they there's so much care into giving you different tools that always make you have to handle things different ways um whether by necessity or just by like the things you have on you right now yeah it's uh it is i i kind of wonder like how much of it is design and how much is just kind of raw effort you know, it's like you think about like, mm. oh, this is this is like cleverly programmed versus just like just by fucking like brute force. Did they make people like walk around this realistically or like have have these kind of patterns? Um, something Blake, I want to get your opinion on this. I feel like I have an, an essay uh, in me on on this aspect of like 
we have played a lot of rotten games where there is this shared theme of no matter how tough an enemy is, one headshot brings them down. And uh -huh. I think it is so valuable a like thing to have in the game to just like enforce this theme of like human fragility of like it doesn't matter one of you know i think it, it matters how how like animated and and vocal and kind of realistic the humans seem in this game because it makes a moment where you like accidentally get a headshot off and they just drop like so shocking you know just just because it's like if i didn't do that they had a whole person in them that would have done like five different tactics and i would have had to deal with it and instead all of that was blown out of the back of their head you know and as as soon as you make a game where you are like shooting people in the head multiple times i feel like that just that illusion is gone and so it is one of my like the enemies are so dangerous but also do like they they just take a realistic amount of damage and maybe if i was playing on a higher difficulty level ellie would feel that way as well but on i can take well, a lot of shots now i i agree with you but i uh, the, the infected aside because i think clickers can take a few headshots and uh -huh. obviously the heavier uh infected can i do think there's some brute enemies that can take multiple headshots and kind of to your point i think it kind of ruins the illusion of a lot of this game it's like okay there's this big dude but like can i just headshot him even though it'll be hard and it's like nope still requires yeah. like four. Yeah, we am i right about that am I, I, but i'm right about that right like they we'll, can take multiple we'll headshots okay. I, we'll have to test that Mythbusters. yeah uh, get back to that because i don't distinctly remember like anyone that just like inherently took more headshots i know some people have like riot gear and like um helmets and shit but i'm thinking one enemy specifically um, but I also think, like, to your point, Jacob, it's it feels good that most enemies in this game, even if you're not nailing headshots, if you're hitting with bullets two, three shots yep. at most, four at the absolute I mean, max, hey, it's like you have eight shots total, so it better right. not take more than three. Mm. And, I mean, that's that Call of Duty thing, right, where, like, yourself and every enemy could go down with, like, one or two bullets, and headshots will take them out at one every time. Um, I think this game, like, really... Uh, benefits from having that kind of approach to enemy health where it's like okay i have three bullets and i'm good chance i'm gonna miss all three but if i can nail these like i know this dude is not getting back up and i mean i i know that i'm into the combat because like i actually fiddled with the individual difficulty sliders which is not something that i do very often but i started playing this on normal and and what i turned up to hard was like the number of resources you find and like i think i turned up like the enemy ai as opposed to ellie's because you can turn up ellie where she like takes more damage or you can turn up the enemies and it essentially makes them smarter and, and maybe makes them take more damage but like it, it was that kind of like it was like i want to be playing how the game wants me to and me having full inventory feels like it's not doing that and so like actually being able to and you know kudos to them for letting you adjust those individually i was like i don't want to be dying in one shot but i do want to like be wondering if i can spare this molotov which is like you want to have that like mental argument with yourself before you use any resource in this game because everything's so dangerous but also everything's so slim it's not like you've got a pocket full of grenades what's your molotov uh strategy because i'm a throw a brick throw a bottle first to get the infected to group up around them then molotov them and mm. then 
what happens here is the clickers go so crazy, they'll help spread a little more fire. And that's how you use those Molotovs. It doesn't work with the humans as much, but nevertheless. That's good. Also, if you can just get like a doorway, a bunch of infected will just run through it and set themselves on fire. Um, But I was really using them on what are the what are the new kind of infected that they introduce in this section that like explode? Uh, Shamblers. Shamblers. I was uh, there. Those are some hard. Those are probably the hardest combat sections in this specific part of the game is they put you underground with like a whole bunch of infected that can basically insta kill you. Uh, And Mm. I was was easy. Okay, well Blake says it's easy, so I'm I'm you, wrong. <laughs> you put the you put the trigger bombs on the two doorways and then you stand on the elevated platform and then they run in and then the next ones that come in you just throw Molotovs at them and use all your material, but you get through oh, okay. without ever taking any damage. <laughs> easy. Can can we just talk through what's going on in Seattle really quick? really quick and we got to talk about the museum as well. Yeah, so it, it, you get to Seattle and aside from your revenge tour what is effect what you're slowly uncovering is there are two main factions that have taken over Seattle the WLF which stands for the Washington Liberation Federation front front, front. Uh, the wolves as they're I guess colloquial colloquially called and we don't see much of them we see the aftermath of something they this other group does and uh, well we first we know that they were fighting Fedra so it's kind of three because it's it's interesting, I think, the the Wolves versus Fedra, because Ellie hates the WLF so much that she almost seems unable to recognize, like, hey, this is exactly what the Fireflies were doing. You know, it's it's like you you were down with the Fireflies and, and that's but yes, so then later on in the section, the WLF essentially beats Fedra, um, but yeah. then this this new group Fedra's- pops up. Fedra is kind of a non-issue in this game after the kind of the opening. But yeah. the second group, we, we see the aftermath of what they did in a TV station, a uh, very scary scene where they have disemboweled and hung people. And that will come back later. Um, we only know them as the scars right now that we don't know much about other than their name and kind of uh, their scary. But that's basically what's happening in Seattle. And we are just now in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's cool that like, just the the enemies having imperfect information where they just think Ellie and Dina are scars because they have no idea mm-hmm. that like they are kind of third partying this whole conflict. And the WLF and scars, we will see it in much greater detail, but we're told in the beginning here there's a civil war between them yeah, going on like for Seattle right now. So anyway, that's that's what's going on there. I I did another another comment from Annie that I thought was uh, very funny along this is like. That section where they're like WLF patrolling and and you're like going and killing them kind of three at a time or whatever. She was just like, what are they even doing? Like, why? How stupid? Like, why do you need to walk around with guns outside? Like, what, what are you like preventing here? It just feels like they're like, I'm going to do my little military job because like that's what I know how to do in a way that feels so, again, it's like the 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 post-apocalypse imitating the pre-apocalypse of like what what point is this serving other than this just kind of like illusion of like military control yeah just like the real (laughs) military um all right flashback let's let's do it well well no hold on god there's so much fucking story in this game dina and ellie are going through seattle causing a ruckus bringing the motherfucking ruckus uh shit's going south they're killing lots of people uh 
they come across the corpse of one person that was at Joel's death. They are captured by a second one that Ellie uh, stabs in the neck, who gives them the name of all the the name and pictures of everyone she's going to be tracking down. And then as they are trying to find somewhere to hunker down as uh, they're running into more and more infected and more and more WLF, uh, they take bunker at a theater where Dina reveals she has been pregnant this whole time, which explains some of the sickness she was getting a little earlier in the game, which causes Ellie to react, uh, I'd say, poorly towards her uh, <laughs> yeah, love not interest, well. her, her partner. And then they kind of break off in this theater where they're uh, staying for now. And then we get a flashback. Sorry, there's some crucial info there. I felt like we needed to Yeah, I, and I do think it's interesting that like we don't really know how long they've been traveling from Wyoming to Seattle and there's just a line that Ellie says that it's like you knew this like weeks ago we could have turned back which I I do think is one of those like little lines that paints a big picture of like oh my gosh they were just like riding on horseback like think about all the shit they did Mm. on that ride and like theoretically they have no clue how they'll be how long they'll be in Seattle at this point because obviously we know having played the game, but like all they have when they get to Seattle to go off of is Ellie remembers she's looking for someone with a, a braid, yeah. and that's it. <laughs> like anyway, um, all right, and then and then we go to a little museum and we do get a happy Ellie and Joel moment. The game robbed it of, has robbed us of it up to this point, but we do get a really nice moment of Joel and Ellie before it's ruined. Um, can I tell you a, a story about my life? No. Okay. Um, well, so the next <laughs> yes, thing that Ellie tell does. Us the story. Um, so there is a museum near me uh, called the Museum of Life and Science that uh, has had for many years in various states of disrepair and and then repair um, a life-size brontosaurus, not in front of it, but in like the woods kind of to the side of it. And so it's like... You don't walk up and you're immediately like, this is part of a museum. It's like you're kind of biking along a trail. And then it's like, oh, my God, there's a dinosaur over there, Um, which is very cool. And, of course, Ellie finds a T-Rex in front of this museum and is very excited. But uh, even more so, I have these vivid memories of I would go with my dad and we would kind of like adventure back into that forest and what we eventually realized is there used to be a whole like wilderness trail that was essentially left to grow over because there is like a woolly mammoth just in the middle of the fucking woods with like no trail to it at all that and it's and it's like it's like parts of it are kind of falling off and you can see that it's made of like paper mache or something but anyway the so so my my point in telling this is just like the experience of wandering through the woods and like finding a big sculpture that's part of a museum is like weirdly close to life for me and i was just so <laughs> so delighted both times that i've played um, it to do this i believe we mentioned this on the podcast about a month back that i was in durham north carolina to hang out with you aj and our friend mitch Conveniently, you did not take us to the coolest thing in Durham, North Carolina, which is the fucking dinosaurs in the woods. You dick! I'm so Unbelievable. sorry. It was it was my uh, my plot to get you back here in the future. God, you took me to a freaking boring other museum instead, where I got to see Andy Warhol paintings for the first time. That was pretty sick, honestly. That museum was really cool. What was that? Let's shout them out, friends of the show. Uh, the Nasher. Yeah, the Nasher. That place was rad. Uh, but they didn't have dinosaurs, so 
Okay, so that's my story about the museum. Uh, how how do y'all like the museum? It's cool. Shouts out to it. Uh, just generally the museum, like the the concept yeah. of a museum. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how do you feel about museums in, in oh, concept? Oh, in that case, <laughs> very cool. I love museums, dude. They're so sick. Um, I don't go to a lot of them. I, I need to now that I'm in New York where there are apparently like a bunch of them. And, oh, uh, you're going to go to a lot uh, starting in November with me and AJ. Cool. Uh, just drag no, me this, to them and yeah <laughs> this section so okay so i mentioned this earlier and like I, I i still really like the story of this game it lacks a lot of emotional impact on a second playthrough for me which i think is more of a fault of mine than the game like i just don't really i, I don't really enjoy engaging with stories for a second time and this game is kind of like reliant on these beats <laughs> I just think that's funny. Like you're like I, I don't like to think about things a second time. Yeah, how many times have you seen Ichi the Killer, Blake? Well, that's different. That's a better story. It's <laughs> <laughs> completely different. There, um, there are exceptions to everyone. I'm just saying, like, okay, but right, like the whole point of Ichi never lands the same for me. And like I think this game, more so than Ichi the Killer, since now you brought up this uh comparison, is reliant on those moments really landing and like hitting you in the gut, whether in a positive or a negative. And as a player who just doesn't really experience that often, this section kind of felt a little cumbersome in its prestige touriness, which is like, I got to kind of slowly walk through this. And But then you get to the fucking, the, the, the space machine, as they're called. Uh, and of course, that moment's great. It's so good. It's so good. But I was skipping primarily all of this, just trying to get to oh, the end of it. Brutal. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, man. I mean, I I love the scene. I I think, like as I mentioned earlier, I think the game is constantly like, no, inly like grappling with like two different visions of Joel Miller as a a person, um, and because I, what I love about this scene, and not no shade to my own parents who like mostly left me alone to like find my own interests and like not give a shit about things, um, I I like seeing a version of Joel that is so invested in Ellie's interests that he is like. I am going to, like, what is, like, what's the inverse of a love language? Like, something that you like to do for people as opposed to the thing that you need to do to feel loved? Whatever that is. Um, I like the idea of like, him knowing Ellie well enough and her interests and what she cares about to put on this huge grand gesture in the fucking apocalypse when everything he does here sounds, like, wildly improbable to me. I don't know how you're going to get a fucking cassette recording of right. a space launch in Doesn't the matter. middle. Don't worry of... about it. <laughs> sure, sure. It's the thought that counts. It's the thought that counts. Um, I, I think I like that in that, like, because I think there's a lot of um, a lot of conversations that happen around Joel and what he's done, and sort of like this projection of who and why he does the things that he does. Um, I think being like, oh, I'm just trying to like have this surrogate daughter to like replace my old one. Where I think like you see these very clear through lines of him and Ellie having their own relationship and their own things that they care about together. Um, and I think the game, like, grappling with that, and, like, I think, like, you know, the, the very last scene of this flashback where, like, you know, we've had this great day together, we've, like, really enjoyed our time together, um, and then you, you're reminded, oh, right, there's this cloud that's hanging over this relationship now, and whatever, whatever good times are happening, like, they are, they are on borrowed time, like, Joel is, you know, moments away from being found out for who he is and what he's done, um, and so I think, like, for... For me, this scene hits because it is. Because I think the game has to like kind of again like I'm, I keep like nearly skipping ahead to things that y'all talk about in another later episode. But I think to like earn that last 
flashback in this game, which I think is like the entire emotional crux of the entire game, is the final scene of this game. Um, I think it has to show that like Ellie is more conflicted than the player might be about Joel. Because I think there are plenty of people that are like, you know, oh, fuck Joel, he deserved this, he deserved what he got, and you know, completely irredeemable, but I think you need to spend a lot of and, time illustrating And that. plenty of people who are like, Joel did nothing wrong ever. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think the, the game has to, like, really earn the moment of, like, showing that someone is conflicted, but ultimately does come to the conclusion that they do. And I think you need things like this that show that Joel was not, or Ellie was not simply a symbol to Joel. She yeah. was a person, and a person that he loved dearly and cared about and, like, was invested in her identity and her interests and that's why i think that this scene illustrates best to me is that like whatever your scruples might have been about joel and Ellie's relationship it did mean something to him uh, yeah i think to your point to kind of like go back slightly on what i said there was a i had not thought of this until recently rewatching noah caldwell gervais uh last of us one and two video on youtube mm. where he talks about in the last of us one we never see joel and ellie just kind of vibing just chilling right. you know we're always just going to the next b from our a and like that actually i think is a course correction in this game with scenes like this where like sure. there's no combat in this there's like a mildly tense moment that's quickly you know alleviated later but like this is like a, a, one of the first times we've just like hung out with joel and ellie and like right. not had it upended by like violence or horror you know what i'm saying like and mm. i do really really like this scene for that it's just like Okay, they get to be people for a little while mm -hmm. beyond, like, the conversations they have in between shooting people. Yeah, I I mean, I, I like the flashback a lot. I actually, I love the museum stuff, just in that, like, how close it feels to a real museum. I assume sure. this is basically a real museum that they, like, photo scanned or whatever. Um, I have written in my notes, why doesn't the astronaut thing fully land for me? Um, because it is, and I think it's almost similar to to the Pearl Jam moment where it's like, I can like see the game's effort here in a way that I think almost pushes me away where it's like, this is also, this is very similar to a thing they did in last behind or left behind the DLC mm -hmm. where, where you have um, yeah. like Ellie imagining playing the arcade game while her friend describes what the game is. And you can like see the lights on her face. Um, and I think it's just, I, I love the museum and I think the 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 space capsule even though I don't I don't want it out of the game but I just feel like I can like see the effort of them being like this is a nice moment a little too clearly for it to like totally emotionally mm. land for me but I'm still I still I'm still glad it's in there like I still mm. you know I I like it much more than you know just having another scene where they like kill a clicker together I, I think that's part of what um because, like, you brought up the Left Behind scene, which is, like, the equivalent scene in the arcade, which they notably did not do in the show, and I wrote about it over at Kotaku, and they got a lot of shit for it, um, was that, like, by removing that sort of scene where Ellie is having to, like, imagine something that was in the world before she was ever born, before everything went to shit, I think that's, like, such a paramount touchstone of The Last of Us is, like, Ellie's constant lack of concrete connection to things from before, but this is always this, like, dream that she has of it, um, because, like, you know, it's not about, I, th I think, um, Noel Cald Caldwell Gervais said this in his video as well, like, Joel is not necessarily, like, help letting her live her dreams, but she's, like, the gift is the dream itself, and these sort of ideas that, like, Ellie is constantly, you know, and there's even points in, like, in later in the game where she's, like, at a, at a convention center, it's like, oh, we were born in the wrong generation, man, like, a lot of that, like, nostalgia for a life you did not live in a time period you weren't around for 
is so paramount to, again, like, the sort of, um, the culture of The Last of Us, like, the sort of, like, survival of culture in The Last of Us, and is so paramount to Ellie's arc throughout, and, like, her, her interest is, so, like, I think, again, like I was saying, I think, like, Joel recognizing, like, these are things that she wished she could have one time experienced, um, I, I think that's why it works for me, although, like, I think that's probably why they didn't do the arcade scene in the show, is so they can pull this moment off in the second season of the show, because, yeah. like, they don't want the, like, clear repeat that they end up doing in the game, which is, in retrospect, like, kind of surprising that they did something that was that overt in terms of, uh, repeating the same, like, literally, like, the same camera angle and the same, like, effects, so odd choice in retrospect. Man, at some point, we're gonna have to carve time out on this podcast to talk about this, them doing this game as a TV show, because I think far more than the first game this one justifies why it has to be a video game to mm-hmm. work that i just like cannot yeah. fathom how you make that work as a tv show without the season being 50 episodes long. but mm. blake it's not going to be this episode because we we've got to wrap it up um i have a lot more to bring up actually i i know but i need to go <laughs> i need to do things with my day uh Ken, thank you so much for coming on, for, yeah, for lending absolutely. us your your expertise, your perspectives on this game. Um, what is, I mean, we, we said you write for Kotaku, you have um, uh, Normandy FM, a podcast. If people wanted to read your Last of Us writing specifically, where would you, like, direct them to? Um, most of it that was coming out, like, I feel like around the time of the Last of Us Part 2 will be on Fanbyte. Um, I think the most well-rounded thoughts I have are actually on Kotaku, just because, like, it was during the show, and I think there are a couple essays on there that I think largely encapsulate my feelings on the series, which was one was about, um, like it was one about Joel, one about Ellie. One of them was like, uh, the last of the show tries to change what the game told us about Joel or something along those lines. Um, and, uh, the Ellie one was, I think, uh, the show changed Ellie in ways that makes season two worrying. Some, some bullshit like that. But I, cause I think those are like probably the most all encapsulating, uh, essays I've written about the last of us in terms of that. Um, but, uh, also, like, the most beat-by-beat stuff is Normandy FM, which we did 16 episodes of both games. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was before the remake or the show came out, so, like, there's, you know, some context missing there, but that is probably the most all-encompassing as well. Um, I was on that. You were on that. I'm just remembering. I was. I talked about how good the puke is in this game. You (laughs) did. Most realistic puke I've ever seen in a video game. Blake loves the puke. We'll, We'll get to it, Jacob. Don't worry. Um. Yeah, I can't recommend Ken's writing enough on The Last of Us. My go-to source when I want to read about this stuff. I even read all your uh, stuff on the TV show, and I didn't even watch most of that. I only watched <laughs> a couple episodes. I still read it. So, hell yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Yeah. yeah uh, thanks for having me. For, for next time, we will be playing up until uh, the character switch. We've already... It's like, when the game came out, that was a spoiler. Now I think it's mm. more or less well-known. Uh, but that'll be our next session up until the, the end of Ellie's uh, part. Uh, for Blake Hester, my name's Jacob Geller. Uh, this has been Something Rotten. Uh, and uh, as you go... If I ever were to lose you... <laughs> I'd surely lose myself. You can stop recording, Jacob. (laughs) Fade it out, Blake. (laughs) 